0: Buddhist Reflections on Serenity and Love, by Ajahn Sona. Chapter 6, Abandoning the World. This is the sixth talk on the breath, and I just realized I haven't really described how to do it, so maybe I should do that. Probably most of you have some idea how to do breath meditation by now, but it's really worth spending time on. There's a half a dozen maybe even eight or so, mainstream editions and translations of the Anapanasati Sutta that you will come across. They have various takes on breath meditation, some of them being quite obscure and a number of them being in fair agreement. One thing that is very interesting in the commentaries is a kind of emphasis on what are called nimittas, sort of these signs of success in samadhi. If you read the later commentaries, especially the Vasudhi which is about a thousand years after the Buddha, the nimitta is this special, peculiar effect that arises in the mind. It's almost like a secret left out of the teaching. When I first started reading this stuff, which was way more than 30 years ago, it seemed like a little secret code. The teacher asks you, so how's your meditation going? you describe how it's going, and since the nimitta is not mentioned in the Anapanasati Sutta, it's kind of a way of testing whether you're really experiencing something. Because if you're experiencing it, then you might mention this nimitta, this light nimitta that's coming up in your mind. Or the teacher might hint around, so you breathe, and then you're getting stillness, and you think you're getting some samadhi, getting some jhana, and then anything else? It's like a special little secret of the teachers. I assumed that was correct. But as I researched it more, I realized, I don't think it works that way. The pure absence of any mention of an interior light source in the Anapanasati Sutta is maybe the first hint. The Buddha forgot? But he taught this thing his whole life. His whole life as the Buddha. Did he leave out this extremely important phenomenon which helps you to identify the experience? I don't think so. As I went back in the sutras, I found that the earlier commentaries failed to mention the phenomenon of an interior light occurring. So at some time, 500 years after the Buddha, there's a growing commentarial agreement on some sort of interior light. But before that, there's nothing for the first 500 years. What we want to emphasize is that breath meditation is air meditation. And that it's an induction. It's a way of inducing, finding your way in past the normal operations of the mind. What are those normal operations of the mind? Well, one of the primary characteristics is that the mind is fundamentally restless. It's intrinsically restless. That's still the case even if you've been meditating for 20 years. Now, restlessness is not the best English word for this. The fact is that your mind kind of moves around all the time. Little breezes blow through. You're in an area of the country where the wind never seems to die down. It blows from this direction, from that direction. You're always trying to fix your hair. This is natural. This is the intrinsic nature of the mind, and you won't get rid of that until you're an Arahant. So you should feel relieved. Everybody should be thinking, oh geez, well, that's nice to know. I've been meditating for 20 years, still drifting. No, it's not going to end until you're an Arahant. For the Anagami, for instance, the third stage of enlightenment, one of the fetters that remains is restlessness, meaning that the mind moves. This is its intrinsic nature. It just moves around. It's like a pet dog who can't find that perfect spot to lie down. He gets up, he moves across here, he moves there. The mind moves around. It's looking. It's not even sure what it's looking for. Actually, when it comes down to it, it's just looking. It's like going into a store. Can I help you? Mm, Just looking around. Mm, We're closing up now. So that's the last thing that's going to go. We can get the mind to be still for certain periods of time, but don't ever concern yourself that your mind still just rambles around and is curious about everything. It's a survival thing. I think it's very, very important that the mind does it. Now, when it's just a storm of movements and so forth, then that survival mechanism goes off the track. Some people live rather short lives because they're just distracted all the time. They might die by accident or something like that, or they could just be frustrated by the incessant excessive exaggerated actions of the mind. This is also one of the hindrances known as agitation. Agitation is more or less an exaggerated form of the natural movement of the mind. So we should expect that when we sit down to watch our breath until a very, very advanced stage, We will always meet with the natural wandering tendencies of the mind. And you're not going to get rid of it quickly. And it's not just you. Everybody's got it right up to Anagami. And there's not too many of those walking around either. Another attachment that the Anagami has is attachment to jhana, both the rupa form jhanas and arupa-formless jhanas. Very, very subtle. They delight in it. This is not something to be worried about. Included in the last five fetters is a trace of self. There's a little lack of clarity about the nature of anatta, or the selflessness. And accompanying that are these four other traces. A little bit of a lack of knowledge, a little bit of attachment to the jhanas, the extremely pleasant nature of the jhanas. And when not in deliberate stilling of the mind, the mind wanders. It's not wandering into hell or wandering profoundly. It just wanders. These are trivial, the last things to go. If you have any of those, that's not really something to worry about. You, in fact, must have them. You're not allowed not to have them. Some of you go to Buddhist schools where they say, don't get attached to the jhanas, don't let your mind wander around. This is bad advice because you cannot not be attached. The jhana is a form of pleasure, a very delicious and refined type of pleasure, and you don't have a choice about your attachment to that. Of course, it's very easy not to be attached if you can't meditate. You don't know what it is since you've never tasted it. But when you do taste it, you will automatically be attached, and it's not a harmful attachment. Let me put that another way. All attachments are ultimately a problem, But this one is like making too much money and having to pay taxes. It's a nice problem to have. The fact that you're attached to jhana is a nice problem to have, and you can't bypass that one. Before you even experience it, you are implicitly and intrinsically attached to it. This is nothing to worry about. When you confront your mind, when you sit down to meditate, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this, If you're not an arahant, you're going to face a mind in motion. That's not a problem. Be patient with it. What is there to complain about? But we want to bring it in, in a kindly fashion. It's not like this is the first time we notice that our mind is wandering. So we bring it in. We more or less are inviting it into a spring-like environment. We're saying, come on in from all that wandering around. This is a very refreshing and clean and cool place to be. You'll like it. You have to bring it in as a positive experience, not, it's time to meditate, it's good for you, eat your green beans. No, it's got to be an invitation into the beautiful. And so when you inhale, you have to feel the cool air hit the back of your head. Not the back of the outside of your head, the back of the inside of your head. It should come in and hit the back of your skull. It's just like Perrier, with a little twist of lemon on a very hot day. Each inhalation is like that. It's cooling, and cool is good. Nibbana is cool, the Buddha is cool, Bob Dylan is cool, and cool is good. This is the cooling of the fires of the world, actually. There's a whole sermon called the Fire Sermon. The Connected Discourse is 35.28, where the Buddha says, Sights are on fire, sounds, smells, tastes, touches. The world, I say, is on fire. This is the way to put the fire out. Now you've got all these instructions in Anapanasati. They've taken the components apart like a YouTube video where they take a machine apart and they want to do it slowly so you get to see how it all works and everything. But in reality, once you're meditating, the systematic process through a short breath or a long breath, inhalation, exhalation, experiencing the whole duration of the breath, onwards to tranquilizing the formations, onto the arising of joy, all that is perhaps pretty quick. This is like going to your piano teacher and they're going to break it down into systematic, clear, separate things. But that's not the way the piece is going to be played later on, once you're familiar with it. In the commentary, they ask, how fast can this be done? And they talk about some monks entering it in one breath, moving right through, even having the ability to skip over the various jhanas. How fast and how deep can you go? Well, if you're familiar with it, you can dive right in. Once you know where you're going, you just go there as fast as you can. Take the shortcuts. It doesn't always have to be this deliberate systematic series of following the steps. As you get the feel for it, it's closer to a sport or a craft than it is to an idea. It's like learning how to balance on skis or how to bounce a basketball or that kind of thing. There's getting the feeling. There are all these agonizing preliminaries, but once you get the feeling, that's what you want. And it's the same with the breath. You get the idea, you get the feeling. That's what you should be looking for. You should also not deliberately be too rigid or wooden in this. It's a gesture, like learning to get comfortable with going in water. You just dive off the end and then enjoy. So you're diving into this experience. It is really a beautiful refuge from all of life, the problems of life. Alcohol is a refuge from the problems of life, but unfortunately, it's very degenerative. People dive into that, too. If the ocean was whiskey and I was a duck, I'd swim to the bottom and never come up. Oh, not me. But I think somebody should reword that song about Jana To swim to the bottom and never come up. Yeah should be delightful. The person wants to swim to the bottom of the whiskey bottle. But what do they really want? They just want freedom from suffering. They just want the pain to go away, the problems to go away. It's a perfectly noble desire. Who wants to suffer? Who wants problems? I don't know what happened to it, but the mind is just a little too complicated for this dumb universe. So we are escaping in jhana, and if anybody accuses you of escaping, you say, I wish I could, actually. I've gone away to that meditation place, not facing reality. I hope I don't have to face reality. Of course, though, meditation in jhana is reality. It turns out that the problems we have are actually not real. They're fabrications of the unskillful mind, the mind that doesn't know better. It creates pain, it creates problems, but they dissolve. And you find out later on that you were living in a false sense of reality that was painful. Jhana is not painful. It's extremely pleasant, and it requires a certain amount of wisdom and skill to get into it. And when you get into it, you deserve to get into it. You can't get into it without deserving to get into it. If you get into it, you're worthy. You can't fake your way in. If you get in, you really have the requirements to get in. There are lots of experiences in life where you feel like you're a fake. You get into some school or course or university, some job, and you think, why did they let me in? You feel like Groucho Marx who said, I would never join a club that would have me for a member. If you can join the Jana Club, you are fully qualified. It never makes a mistake. What are the qualifications? Your virtue is adequate. Virtue is not some universal law that you just have to follow and don't ask why. From a Buddhist point of view, virtue is a practical matter. What is the point of virtue? The Buddha says you cannot experience the higher states of mind except by establishing yourself in virtue. That's one of the most brilliant justifications for why be good. It's a very difficult question to answer. Lots of philosophers spend their whole lives trying to answer why be good? They try to figure it out in the world. Why bother? Why be good? Why not do anything you want? The Buddha says because if you don't, you won't be able to get into these conditions of consciousness, and that's why you should do it. There's no way around that. It's not just something related to a culture. It's the energies that prevent you from accessing this special condition of being. This special condition of being is devoid of the emotion of aversion, devoid of speeches and actions which follow from your motivations of anger or craving for worldly experiences. These shut the door to higher consciousness. It's got nothing to do with cultural beliefs or expectations or anything like that. It doesn't matter what culture you're from. If those energies are present, you cannot enter that room. Five to leave behind and five to welcome in is a little stanza from the Dhammapada. The five to let go of are the hindrances. Five to welcome in the jhana factors, mixed in with the factors of awakening. These are applied and sustained attention or clarity, joy, piti, ease of body, sukha, and a kagata, the one-pointedness or focus of mind. These are your dearest friends in the world. These are your true relatives. When you show up at their door, just knock and walk in, and every single time you are welcomed into the most loving kind of family. There are voices in your head and emotions in your head, and they're like a family or acquaintances or something like that. In the suttas, they talk about them as advisors. The hindrances are advisors, your security counsel. You're the king, the consciousness. You have these voices whispering in your ear about the negativities of the world and what you should get and why you can't sleep and why you shouldn't sleep and why this and why that. These are the voices, negative voices of the hindrances. Then the positive voices just say, None of that is real. There's no problem here. There is peace in the kingdom. These positive voices are what you encounter and feel surrounded by once you pass that threshold of consciousness. This stage is induced by the beautiful experience of air, which is not simply air. It's got to be beautiful, too. You have to smile into it. You have to breathe in and have it ricochet against the back of your empty skull. Your skull, phenomenologically, is empty. In other words, your direct actual experience is that it's empty. When you don't think, my skull has a brain in it and all that kind of stuff. That's only objective reality. That's only intellectual reality. Not the way you feel it. How you feel is the important thing. The Pali is in a different reality. It's in a reality where subjective reality is every bit as real as so-called objective reality. In fact, it gets priority. What you experience is real. The other stuff, the sort of objective, commonly agreed-on stuff, is maybe real, maybe not. Who knows? People see things in different ways. Whatever is out there, maybe we'll eventually know, but maybe we'll never know. Your internal reality, your direct experience of reality, your emotional reality is absolutely real. And you can verify it. You can experience it. So it gets priority. It's the one that matters. When you breathe in and your head is light and cool and free, that's real. That's not something made up or anything like that. That is real. That is the reality of the experience. We have to switch gears into that mindset and embrace that and enter into that without any reservations. We could also define the last of the five jhana factors, ekagata, as entering in without reservations. Ekagata, generally translated as one-pointedness, is really wholehearted abandonment of the world. You're wholeheartedly abandoning these unnecessary impediments to your well-being and happiness. You're dropping it and leaving. You're stepping into this utterly safe and positive experience. It's timeless as well, as are basically all beautiful, interesting, fascinating experiences. They're timeless, meaning that the sense of the past and the sense of the future are irrelevant because the current experience is so interesting. You have to be interested. You cannot be half-hearted about this. You cannot be detached about this. It's an act of love. You have to love with all your heart. This is also Dhamma. Dhamma is a love affair. And if you don't love it, you'll have a stale relationship. The more you love it, the more you're committed to it, the more you will get out of it. You have to be absolutely loyal to it as well. Then it's a divine experience. You see this in relationships. People do not know how to commit themselves. They don't know how to be wholehearted in their relationships. They're holding back. They're not allowing full interest, not fully acknowledging the person in front of them. One who can love wholeheartedly in the most noble human relationship is is also probably going to be quite good at entering into samadhi. Samadhi is to merge. Samadhi is to not hold back, to commit. If you've had any beautiful relationships where you felt that, remember them as a good, helpful guide on how to enter into samadhi. It requires all that. Abandonment of distrust, of trying to hold back something. It requires abandonment and commitment. So that we could call ekagata, this wholehearted embrace of the experience. The commentaries and translations, they're worrying about the exact Pali translation. It's not very conducive to the experience of love. It's like some sort of biochemical explanation of why you fall in love. It doesn't relate to the experience, does it? Sometimes the commentaries are quite poetic, especially the earlier ones. They say, the entire body is filled with bliss. They become rapturous in their descriptions. The Buddha also is so beautiful with the similes of what happens. He talks about these underwater plants being absolutely saturated with this, suspended timelessly. Lilies and lotuses underneath the water just hanging Flowers hanging under the water, just suspended, not needing any gravity, saturated. It's important to have these images in your mind. That is exactly what's going to happen to you. Your entire body is going to be fully entered into this experience. Your entire mind, your entire emotional structure is going to enter into this experience. All of you. Nothing is left out. It's like getting out of prison and taking the first breath of free air. You can imagine what that person does when they step out of being trapped for so long. They step out and they smile. Their head turns up. There is a sense of joy. There might even be tears. Sometimes they describe the joy, pity, as tears. Tears coming out of the outer corners of your eyes and down your cheeks. Those are tears of joy. In contrast, tears of sorrow come down off the end of your nose because your head is tilted forward, so they tend to run inside and off your nose. But those joyful ones, they go on the outside of your cheeks. So your head might even tilt back a little bit, and there could be the quality of a smile. It will be very subtle. You can suggest this to yourself through bodily and facial expressions to help you remember. The circuits can feed backwards, back to, what does it feel like to be happy? Maybe I can't remember right now, but if I make that face, if I try to act as if, or pretend, I might be able to suddenly find a memory. Remember the idea of the Buddha sitting under the tree, relaxing and finally eating something, and feeling cool and comfortable. Then he remembers having been cool and comfortable as a child, and it triggers a whole bunch of associations. We're trying to use every trick in the book to find the beautiful, because at some point in our life, we've had some of these moments. We've had these experiences, if only we could find our way back. That's the problem. It's very hard to remember these things. The idea is to find your way back and to rehearse these memories as well, to talk to yourself, to convince yourself, to tell yourself the story until you can get into it. That's needed because you are shut down. You're asked, would you like to be in the high school play? Oh, no, 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 that's not for me to get out on that stage and ham it up. That's pushing it. But that's really the invitation into the jhana, a very dramatic thing. If you're kind of shy and don't want to go, you're locking yourself out of a delicious experience. You have to believe also that you can do this. Then you say, what am I hanging back for? I'm going to die one of these days, and then I'll be sorry, won't I? I was afraid to dance. I was afraid to go into this state of beauty. That's hesitation, a lack of existential commitment. So when you breathe in, just try to go as quickly as you can into this. It's an induction. Smile your way in, fake your way in. Whatever happens, if you do get in, it's authentic. It's never inauthentic. You never don't deserve it. If you can make your way in, go in, slip in. If you get in, you've done the preliminaries. It's adequate. That's all that matters. Later on, you can go back and sort of check over what happened. What were the preliminaries that I set up there? Why could I get in that time? Why not the other times? What was I lacking? Interest? Commitment? Belief in myself? Was I not confident enough? One of the terms they mention in the sutta is confidence. So these are a few hints about how to get in, how to use anapanasati to get into the divine.